What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Pinnacle Performance Podcast. My name is Connor Harris. Today, I have a really awesome guest for you guys today. His name is David Gray. He's a physical therapist, and he has a lot of really good work. We've interacted a lot online, and uh, I think he has some really amazing and unique things to say about the human body. So thank you, David, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Connor. It's a pleasure. One thing that uh, I've noticed about you online that I admire is that you do things a little bit differently than a lot of PTs that are, you know, constantly posting things on social media and taking online clients. And that is that you seem to take a lot of different things from a lot of different methodologies, a lot of different people, perhaps that you've worked under. So could you just explain a little bit about your approach and how you integrate all these different principles and methodologies together? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's not, you know what, like it's not different for the sake of, of trying to be different either. It's just trying to find, find what works and ultimately it brings us back to how the body moves uh, or should move, the shape of the bones, uh, the gait cycle, biomechanics and, and just, just good old like strength and conditioning principles, you know, and a lot of the time while, while hands-on work can be beneficial, uh, manual therapy can be beneficial it can help it, do, it really doesn't fit into any of those kind of principles that we that we know work it's, it's very much a guess a lot of the time with, with hands-on so what I'm trying to do is just give the body or give the person back what they might be missing so I have an appreciation for the foot and the knee and the hip and how those things integrate and move move together and then the, the rib cage, the pelvis, the shoulder. I want to know everything about all of those things because ultimately someone goes and moves, they don't, their knee isn't walking down the street on its own, is it? You know, so like we, we need to have all these things integrated well together. They all need to be loading well on a local level. The joints need to have the movement available to them. But that's such a reductionist approach that some people t- take, I think, that Oh, if every joint has, has its own movement, it'll all figure itself out. That's not really the case. Like the, the brain is very much going to load certain areas. It's going to send load in certain directions. A lot of that happens when the foot hits the floor. A lot of that happens based on every injury, every movement experience your nervous system has ever had. So we need to take these things into account and not, and not just have a strong versus weak uh, tight versus short kind of approach to things that's not good enough when we look at something as complex as the nervous system so we really have to take all these things into account every injury that anyone's ever had is an insult to their to the, the local tissue but also to the nervous system and if we're not taking into account these insults then we're missing a large part of the puzzle I think so my approach is is only different in that I, th- I think we're just, I'm just trying to take into account all these things. And, and it's, it's not like we are getting people stronger. There's no doubt I'm loading my athletes. I'm loading my clients a lot, but it's not load for the sake of load. It's trying to help them move. It's trying to make sure that they are loading through the foot. They are able to pronate. They are able to supinate. They're able to do all these things that they need to be able to do. And we can still get stronger while we, while we improve th- those things too you know? So I hope that kind of answers the question, but it's, it's just give the body what they're, back what they need, give the person back what they might be missing. And that yeah. changes everything. 
I like how you use the word insult to the body because that's a really easy way for people to understand because an insult is going to stimulate a negative reaction and it's just kind of mm -hmm. like, what? And then it's going to kind of have a, it's going to work globally, right? It's just going to be, it's localized. But that's going to have global implications. And the best therapists and the best trainers that I work with tend to be the ones that take that exact approach of, I need to give them what they're not having. I need to restore. And there's a thousand different words of, of saying it, variability, movement options, mm -hmm. emotion, whatever you want to call it. We're all talking mm -hmm. about the same thing pretty much. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that globally, then that's going to feed itself up and down the chain, which brings me to my next point is, a lot of methodologies, they talk about like a top-down approach, right? They talk about the cranium and they work down to the floor. And I think mm -hmm. that's very valuable, like how the pelvis affects the foot. But mm -hmm. you talk a lot about the inverse of that. You talk a lot about a bottom-up approach. And I think yeah. that is extremely valuable because our foot, like you said, is the first thing that hits the ground. So of course, mm -hmm. that is going to send a bottom-up chain of activity through the body. So why do you think this bottom-up approach is so effective? Because your outcomes tend to have really good amounts of success. Why do you think yeah. this approach should be considered along with a top-down? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, there's, mm -hmm. there, and there's a couple of different ways you could go at that. You could go at that kind of mechanically. So how, like how the rib cage affects the pelvis, which affects the the knee which affects the foot but there's also a, a top-down approach looking at that from a more neurological lens so that how the kind of the brain is making predictions based on everything you ever you've ever done but both of those top-down approaches are very much incomplete because from a neurological level a lot of the time when we move our brain does not have a chance necessarily to to if we if i fall off a curb it doesn't have a chance necessarily to start to make predictions and things like that when my foot hits the floor these are short loop reflexes that happen so there's reflexes going from the from the tissue to the spinal cord and back again they're not they don't have a chance to reach these top layers so we if we can address these reflexes then we're giving the body so much more robust movement because now we're freeing up the space up above in the brain to make more kind of higher level decisions and the tissues the local tissues the reflexes can look after a lot of the things that we don't need a brain to look after mm -hmm. so on a neurological level that's huge because that's what gives an athlete or a client or whoever it is robust movement. Because my idea of someone who's not very robust is someone that is guarded. They move slow going through the world. You can see them, they're tensed up all the time. Because you'll say, pick up that pen for me. And they'll have to think about how they're going to pick up the pen. That's a top-down approach. They're, they're analyzing their movement to the nth degree. How am I going to do this without getting hurt? So that's a top-down approach. Whereas someone, if we, can, if, we can, if we can give them back all the stuff that they need, then you'll ask them to pick up the pen and they'll just go down and pick up the pen. The intention is I'm going to pick up the pen. They don't say, right, I'm going to hinge back. I'm going to tense my core. I'm going to do all these things. So that's a robust mover in my opinion because that frees up energy. So we're letting the, the system self-organize and we're letting, we're letting the reflexes look after what they need to look after. That's why they're there in the first place. And then from a mechanical level, 
when the foot hits the floor, you can be as strong as you want through your hips, through your glutes, through your quads. If your foot is a mess, then you have absolutely no ability to express that strength. So the foot hits the floor, it needs to be able to usually strike in a supinated position, move into a more pronated position and move back into a more supinated position. So we have a, a stiff foot, we have a foot then that can be mobile and adapt to the floor, and then it can lock again. Uh, if, if lock is the right word, it, it will become stiff again as we push away. And it's a more rigid foot, rigid is probably the word. So there's so many things. If you, if you think about someone running and their foot strikes the floor, that's going to, ideally, then that's going to give us a calf and a hamstring that start to co-contract together. And that's what allows a knee then to be more stable usually, because now I have a calf and a hamstring and a quad all co-contracting together. And that's what allows then a glute to, to have time then to push me forward. And that isometric at the knee, which requires a good foot strike, hope I'm not losing people here, but the foot hits the floor, that gives us a good calf and a good hamstring, which holds the knee in place, which then allows that, that stable knee allows the transfer of energy to the glute up and down, from the glute and down to the Achilles tendon. And that's free energy then, that's kind of, we're taking advantage of our tendons as we move. And that's, that's, I'm talking about running there, but we're designed to be able to run and walk. So if, we're, if we can move like this, then that's a body that's very, very efficient. And it's mm. also efficient. Efficient is one good thing, but also safe is another good thing. We, move, we use our foot well. A lot of the forces that are coming up into the body are not, are, a lot of them are dispersed by the time they, they get to my knee or the, by the time they get to my hip or my lower back. So a lot of clients that I see with knee problems and hip and, and lower back problems, they actually have a foot that just can't disperse the force and, and use the tendons. They're trying to push using their muscles and they're not happy joints. So we, can, we, have, to, we have to look at the top-down approach, but it's, it's, it's useless without looking at the opposite. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, one thing that I see you talk a lot about uh, on this subject is that co-contraction state. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming you read a lot of Franz Bosch in your day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of Franz. Yeah. Yeah. He has a lot of great things to say about co-contractions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you guys ever read Strength Training Integration or Coordination, I would highly recommend yeah. Check that out. It's a great book. But yeah. uh, in terms of training co-contractions, at what mm -hmm. point in the rehab cycle, the rehab process, mm -hmm. are you going to look at co-contractions? And mm -hmm. if you're going to look at something before that, what would that be? Uh, I'm probably looking at getting co-contractions back from the very, very start because mm. that's um, like if I have someone in a moon boot, I'm still going to try and find a way for them to get some kind of co-contraction happening, basically because that's coordination, that's intermuscular coordination. So yes, we can, like tissue quality is a real thing. We can, we can strengthen someone's calf using calf raises and, and maybe the tissue quality will improve or it should improve. But that doesn't mean that it's going to have the coordination to work with the hamstring and the quad when, when the foot is, is on the floor. That's why that's why some of these guys that you see in the gym that have all the best looking muscles they can't they go and run and they pull a hamstring 
they can't, they, 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 they don't have the coordination at these tissues. Well, that's one of the reasons why. Um, so I, I'm looking to get co-contractions throughout my rehab process and throughout my far past the rehab process because ultimately coordination is what makes the best movers the best movers. It's how they, it's, it's not necessarily all strength. It's, what does Fran say? It's, it's, it's resistance training with coordination. We have to have both together. Now, not necessarily we can strength train. Some people will get great gains from just traditional strength training. Some people will get great gains from coordination training. But if we can get both, a good healthy mix of both, then that's huge. So the reason why some of my people with knee pain for five years or 10 years, that can go away in one session sometimes is because actually it was never a strength problem. It was a coordination problem. And that's why the co-contractions can be huge because if, the brain, if we know that the brain uses pain to protect something like a knee or to protect the joints, usually the joint, there's no damage there a lot of the time, but the brain is, is, is putting pain there to protect it. Then what other options does the brain have to protect their joints? It has something called co-contractions. Mm -hmm. All the muscles, the agonist and the antagonist contract together at the same time to keep a joint safe. So if I can say to the brain, well, you've been using pain for five years to protect it, but here's what you could use. This is called a co-contraction. This is how you coordinate your tissues together. For some reason, the nervous system maybe forgot or, or, or an injury or whatever. It hasn't been doing that. Then that person's nervous system loves that because now it has another opportunity to protect the joint and the pain can go away very quickly. And that is absolute magic. That's amazing. So what would be an example? Like, obviously it's going to depend person to person, but give me an mm -hmm. example of like, you know, day one, super basic co-contraction mm -hmm. you're going to use with someone like knee pain, for example. Yeah. So we'll usually, usually try and get someone lying on their back because it's nice and safe and you might have their foot maybe. So then the knee is quite extended, but not fully extended. There's a little bit of a bend and we'll have their foot front of their foot pressing down into a foam roller. And they push down into a, like a little mini bridge. He lifts up off, or he lifts up off the floor. Only the forefoot is on the is on the foam roller, and they bridge up with their hips. Maybe usually you'll want a little posterior tilt, and they're just pushing down there. So now they're they're in a position. If you were to flip them, it would look like they were running because one knee was bent up, one foot is pushing down into a foam roller that knee is bent like, like they've just struck the floor and they're running. Uh, that foot pushing is going to give us a calf and a hamstring work, a distal hamstring working together. And we can do some of our nice breathing stuff here because we can still keep a nice little tuck of the pelvis. We can still get some abs on if we want to reach up to the sky. And sometimes that's enough to just, to just change them with life. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. It's just giving them what they haven't had in a long time. And we know that when the foot hits the floor, when we run, that knee is going, it should be in an isometric anyway. So we're actually training running here. We'll see improvements in performance when we can start to do this stuff, not just pain and rehab. Mm, that's amazing. That's that. And I love what you said about putting the forefoot on the roller mm -hmm. as opposed to the heel. Mm -hmm. So that's something else that you talk about that I'd love to get into just, just briefly mm -hmm. here is we always talk about heels in the weight room. 
-hmm. we're always talking about feel your arches, feel your heels, all that good stuff. And that's great. But athletes, runners, Mm -hmm. we don't spend time on our heels for the most part. Mm -hmm. We're always going to be on the forefoot. So how Mm -hmm. do you balance the need for someone to control their center of mass in the sagittal playing with their heels, but Mm -hmm. also giving them that forefoot that they need because that's where they spend most of their time? Yeah. It's a, tr- it's a tricky one, you know, and everyone is different here in, in this regard because some people are going to need a lot more heel stuff. Some people are going to need a lot more forefoot stuff. I guess for me, it comes back to what they're missing most. If someone's maybe rib cage and pelvis is a mess, then I'm probably going to have them on their heel more so. Um, if someone's maybe more of a mess, foot, calf, distal hamstring, then I'm probably going to be thinking more forefoot work. Mm. ultimately I want all my clients to be able to do both and have a good mastery of both and then integrate both so that like let's say at the end of the day we're doing a squat a regular squat then I want them to be able to hip flex like go down into the squat feel their heels and as they hip extend I want them to be able to travel forward a little bit onto the foot so they start to feel a bit of midfoot, start to not so much forefoot, but this is when we're starting to integrate the whole foot because that's gait. So loading and propulsion. Ex- yep. Exactly. So hip extension, we, we don't want that knee to snap back to, to join the hip because now you've extended your hip by, by, by just using quads to push and straighten the knees. Whereas if we can keep the knees forward just for just that little bit longer, it's just a split second then we get a bit of glute, a bit of hip extension. So the hip comes forward to join the knees as we stand up rather than the knees coming back to join the hip as we stand up. Mm-hmm. To the untrained eye, it looks, it looks quite the same, but to the trained eye, it looks a little bit different. And to the person that's doing it, if they're doing it well, it feels very different. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes, with some of my good athletes, when I'm programming a little bit, I'll have a heels day maybe and a forefoot day. And I'll split up my... my uh, or their weight training into that, uh, or else it's just kind of integration and having a little bit of both. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, especially what you said about the squat, for example, um, mm-hmm. we're just stronger in a hinge pattern, like human beings. So that's, you see that that's like, it's a very common cheat in compensation is hips shoot back with the knees. But really, mm-hmm. if people were to perhaps lighten the load a little bit and be able to control that, that would be such mm-hmm. a better movement for training. Exactly that. Because I think whether people are consciously aware of it or not, like we're training gait in the weight room one way or another, mm-hmm. like that's what's yeah. happening. So yeah. that, like, we, have to, we have to respect that. But a lot of people don't look at it through that lens. That's why it's, I think it's so important to always keep talking about gait and why that matters, yeah. especially for performance. So on that note, yeah. what would you say um, – is your opinion on, and this is kind of off the cusp, this kind of came up on my head. Uh, what would you say in your opinion is the idea, is the difference between the unilateral and bilateral thing? Like this is something that people talk about a lot. As someone mm-hmm. that's really experienced with the foot and gait mechanics, how do you see the unilateral versus bilateral play into, uh, into effect in terms of the things we're talking about today? Yeah. Uh, and I should just go, just go back to the previous point where you're saying like that we should we should speak more about this stuff that that kind of integration thing one of my mentors Dave O'Sullivan speaks about that quite a bit so I have to give him a shout out there on that um because I was all, I was always doing like heel stuff and forefoot stuff and he said well what if we just do a squat and we have the foot pressure shifting as we as we as we do as we do a squat or a deadlift or everything else mm-hmm. um so that's a nice way the 
the unilateral versus bilateral tricky it's a tricky one mm-hmm. it's a tricky one because I would always or, or tend to drift more towards mechanics, which means I want a single leg exercise to look more like a, a gate position. No, it doesn't have to be perfect, but to look a little bit more like that. But then sometimes we're missing maybe a, a neurological response of I am, I'm actually not using as much weight here, as much load here. And so maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing some of that little kick that I get from having a very, very, very heavy barbell on my back. So there's definitely a place for some of that. Um, but I think in terms of healthy athletes, keeping them healthy for longer, healthy, not just athletes, anyone, but keeping them healthy for longer, feeling good for longer, then there should be a fairly, probably a fairly heavy bias of single leg unilateral work that looks like gait cycle mechanics in, in some way. I think I think that's my best answer there. We want to have, we want to have what what like when we're on a single leg or we're in unilateral. I want to see a knee that's traveling forward, dorsiflexing and pronating foot that's pronating because that's gait. Um, that might be shocking to some people, but it's 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 obvious to me now at this stage, and it feels very good for a lot of people. Uh, hopefully, we get some adductor. Hopefully, we get some kind of glute. Hopefully we get some abs on that side as well, some obliques on that side. So are we really training that that kind of unilateral that leg if if we're not getting those muscles working? I'm not so sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure if both sides of the pelvis are pointing forward. Are, like is that we're we're just finding another way to do a to do a back squat, I think, if we yeah. if we, you know yeah. I, so as long as we can as long as we can get people shifting into one hip, get people shifting into the other hip, get, get muscles that would be working, working, that would be working in the gait cycle when they're on one leg, then that's, we're starting to nudge a little bit closer to that. Mm-hmm. I think that I could not agree more with that. And I think you'll see a lot of strength coaches who uh, have like maybe just as a very general example, two thirds bilateral, one third unilateral exercises. Mm-hmm. And I would, mm-hmm. I would argue maybe it should be the other way around. Um, And I think it's obviously context dependent and it's never good to make black and white statements, but really like we spend so much time on one leg, the gait cycle is so important for these things because as your athletes are running, uh, cutting or even going backwards, it's it's gait in one way or another. So that's Mm -hmm. very well said. Um, Mm -hmm. So in terms of like more weight room stuff, uh, we've already kind of talked about it with um, the co-contractions and ISOs, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of different types of isometric work. And this is something Mm -hmm. that you're very knowledgeable on. You have oscillatory ISOs, you have overcoming, yielding ISOs. Mm -hmm. So when would you use which and how do you, what's your thought process for programming these isometrics into someone's program in rehab or just in the weight room in general? Yeah. Yeah. Depends, depends. It always yeah. depends, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, but you have to give an answer, don't you? Um, so I'll I'll tend to always have some kind of isometrics in in people's program all the time. There'll always be some kind of isometric. Um, typically, like starting rehab with someone, we'll we'll just start with a a, a regular old isometric. Um, Sometimes with athletes, we'll have, to, we'll have to develop or we'll have to go towards maybe an overcoming isometric if we have a tricky problem. But 
so overcoming would be pushing into an immovable object and that's you'll typically see that in performance settings where we go for like all out intensity for seven ten seconds whatever we can um, and then we'll rest so we'll drive as hard and fast as possible for whatever it is seven eight seconds um i i like to use overcoming some 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 people's nervous system just need that little bit of intensity i think they need that maybe it's not even a, a nervous system thing maybe it's a i just feel i just feel like i'm doing something when i'm pushing myself a little bit so for some athletes i'll have like okay there's a pain threshold here if we push to let's say it's an achilles problem or plantar fasciitis problem or something like that if we if we have an overcoming iso where we're just pushing up into a, into a barbell uh you're only allowed to go to about 10% less than before you feel pain. So if pain is at 80% of your maximum voluntary contraction, you are going to take 10 to 15 seconds to build up to a 7 out of 10. You're going to hold that for 30 seconds, and then you're going to take 10 to 15 seconds to slowly build back down. So this is, this is I want to see that they can go up through the gears and go like one out of 10, two out of 10, three out of 10, and actually feel exactly where their pain threshold is and stop before they hit it. Mm. So an overcoming ISO, I, I use them a lot for that in that regard because it really gets them to tune into exactly, at exactly what point does my pain kick in. So 100%, I can't go there, I can't go 90, I can't go 80, but I can go about 70. And I can hold this here and I can push pretty hard here. And I can build up to it and I can build back down. So they're really, because movement doesn't happen from zero to 100. We don't go zero and 100. It's all the little parts in between. That's where the best movers are. That's where the efficiency is. So that's where I quite like overcoming isometrics in the rehab setting. Um, performance setting, overcoming isometrics are brilliant. I think there's a guy called Alex Natera in Australia. I don't know if you've seen any of his work. He does a lot of, I think he had a quote, he, he does, he does, a hell of a lot of overcoming isometrics and he trains like top level sprinters and stuff but uh, he had a quote from from one of his sprinters or something it was like she, she was her performance had gone through the roof and she said uh the, the reporter asked her what kind of weights have you been lifting and she said uh i don't lift them i just hold them <laughs> so yeah it, it's, it's pretty cool like you know it's awesome yeah. it's pretty cool like a mo movement is movement is much more isometric than we think mm -hmm. um there's co-contractions happening everywhere. So that's overcoming isometrics. It's really, really nice if you know what you're doing with them. They can be a little bit tricky. Whereas more yielding stuff, then we're just holding the weight. We're resisting it falling to the floor, maybe. Um, I like to get people doing a lot of hamstring stuff for, for a yielding. So if we lie between two benches, our shoulders are on one bench, our heel is on another bench, and our whole body is suspended between both. You see Alex and Tara doing this stuff. And then you have a lot of heavy weight on the hip, and you're on one leg in between the two benches. That would be more a yielding. So you're trying to resist yourself falling down. Hamstring is going to be working very hard here. And again, for any of my clients, any of my athletes, I like to have this stuff in their program all the time because it makes them feel amazing. They can work very hard. They can, they can lift all, the, all their traditional lifts, whatever they want to do. But if they have isometrics in their program, it makes them feel amazing. Mm -hmm. And also, it, it's, it, it has, 
like an analgesic effect where it makes the pain go away. So if we put them at the start of a session, then that a lot of the time the pain will disperse or I'll feel a lot better. And now I have a chance to actually work on improving how I move and improving my movement patterns because I don't feel like I'm avoiding certain areas. So now I can start to load into positions a little bit better and actually improve my movement patterns. So there's just, it's such a topic. You could probably talk for a week on isometrics alone, but people are just, the main thing is they're not used enough. So yeah. many options there and they're very valuable for every single person. Like I've had top level power lifters who, who I put them into isometrics in running specific joint angles, which are, they would see as no use to them and their squat gets better. And, and the answer is, and they, they wonder why, why does my knee feel better and my squat feel better? The answer is because you're a human being and your nervous system is begging out for, yeah. for you to get better at gait. So when you do that, you get better at everything else at the same time. It's amazing. That's amazing. I love that. Um, that was, I think myself, I don't use this stuff enough. Definitely not. And you're really opening my eyes to this. So this is, this is great even for just myself. Um, so in terms of oscillatory ISOs, mm -hmm. uh, that's one that very few people know a lot about. Mm -hmm. When would you use that? In what context would you consider using that? So tricky one. Um, so let's say again we have that person in we just did that 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 like that bridge on the foam roller with the front of the foot the foot on the foam roller maybe i'll have a maybe i'll have a ball then next time and that ball is kind of shaking a little bit so that's mm -hmm. a little bit of an oscillation then and it's a little bit more reactive then so there's 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 not much movement i still want an isometric at the knee the isometric is at the joint angle this is an important it's an important point, actually. The isometric is typically at the joint angle. The muscle won't be in an isometric usually. So the, the hamstring will be rapidly firing, relaxing, relaxing and contracting over and over again. And we know from research that the athletes who can relax quicker are the athletes who are, are better athletes. So mm -hmm. oscillations then gives, gives them a chance to experience that very, very rapid contract, relax. Uh, and that's when that's when we kind of start to take it up a level. So I like to go like, especially for tendinopathy things, I like to go for an isometric, then maybe into an eccentric, then into an oscillatory isometric, and then into a harder position. So if we can overload those three things in one position, then we'll surely be feeling a lot better usually as we get into a harder position, and then we can start all over again. Got so it. you'll see oscillations a lot. Um, in, in my work but sometimes you need another person to do it so that you're you're giving them a little shake so it's i like them to be quite reactive but if you're on your own you can use them um but it's a little bit more of a proactive maybe is it really an isometric probably not it's just a very very short like concentric eccentric movement with a little isometric in between but some of these definitions are not are not perfect 
Yeah. Yeah. That goes back to the reflex thing we were talking about earlier. And I think mm-hmm. that's a great consideration that often mm-hmm. we don't think about a lot is that there's a lot of activity that goes on in, in the body that does not get sent to our brain immediately. So that's really, really good stuff. Um, this is making me think a lot, yeah. a lot differently. Uh, so in terms of athletic performance, when it comes to gait, when it comes to running fast and being an explosive athlete, you talk about stiffness quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think this mm-hmm. is a huge consideration because if you're not stiff enough, then you're not going to be as springy, uh, quote mm-hmm. unquote. But if you're too stiff, well, then you're probably at a significantly higher risk for a tear or an yeah. injury because you're just a board. So mm-hmm. in terms of stiffness, and I know this is like, I like to ask tough questions. This is such a context dependent thing. And it's, it's hard, yeah. like it requires a coach's eye to some degree to see if someone's mm-hmm. too stiff or not stiff enough. But is there any way we can measure this? Is there any way that we can train this in a way where we know, okay, this person is at a good amount of stiffness for this individual as opposed to this, this person's too stiff or this person is not springy enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure about measuring. It's probably, unless you have the best tech, you're probably not going to be able to measure it. Yeah. See, I think you're going to start to see more, more and more kind of maybe research studies come out that like people with groin problems, people with, and when I talk about rehab, like people, someone with a problem, a hip problem, a lower back problem, whatever it is, a knee problem, I'm not just talking about so, so just because someone has pain, but the, the pain is really, is really nice to look at because we know then if someone gets, if someone's pain improves when we start to do certain movements and they start to move better, really that's the same for performance then because it's the same thing really. If someone is moving better, they're moving better. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more research come out about stiffness in the ankle and how important that is. There's already some out there. And not just for ankle problems, but for hip problems and lower back problems. Because ultimately, as someone's usually, usually you'll see, and this is anecdotal, but some of the research supports it, someone has like an athletic groin problem or something like that. As they report better, like my symptoms are improving in the groin, You'll, they'll show like EMG studies showing that the ankle is actually doing more work. The foot is doing more work. So have we strengthened the, have we strengthened the groin or the hip flexor or the glutes, or have we just improved how they move and, and give them some stiffness back and some intent back through the foot, through the foot, excuse me. So with, with, with a lack of, with a lack of technology, then it's just about looking at people move. So when I'm training, jumping and hopping and plyo work, I want people to be stiff. I want them to be springy. Um, I don't want to see people sinking down into movements. You'll see it's quite, it's quite easy to see when you, when you know what you're kind of trying to look for. But you'll ask someone to just jump forward and stick a landing and, and, and they'll be okay. But then you'll ask them to jump forward and then hit the floor and jump again and stick the landing. And that second jump, you'll see them sink. You'll see their knee bend quite a bit. You'll see the hip bend because they can't get co-contractions, number one. They can't get a stiff, any stiffness at the foot or the ankle. And they're what we might call maybe more muscle-driven athletes that they need to be able to sink into muscle tissue so that they lengthen it so that they can eccentrically load and then they can push off. But they're not the athletes that you see on your television 
because they don't exist on your television. They wouldn't be there if they were doing that because that's too slow. So we're training a lot of the time athletes to sink into movements in the gym and or land and, and, and absorb the force and, and drop down and stuff like this. Yeah. That is not what happens in sport. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not. That's not a, an athlete or a person that can take advantage of their tendons. Uh, and it's usually joints that get, get beaten up over time. Mm-hmm. So there's a key concept that Franz Bosch talks about quite a lot. It's not, it's not his concept, but he talks about it quite a lot. And it's muscle slack. And it's basically, it's a huge determinant of, of performance is how quickly can you overcome muscle slack? So how quickly can you get tension into the muscles? And for a lot of people that are lacking that stiffness, the answer is not very quickly at all. They need to sink. And sometimes in the weight room, this is an important consideration. We're teaching people to actually get worse at overcoming muscle slack because how do we improve or how do, how do they learn to overcome muscle slack? They put weights in their hands. And that's what, give, that's what gives tension into the body then. So now the nervous system learns that actually I need external load now to get tension into my muscles. Holy but shit. as soon as I go and move through the world, I don't have external load. And can I get tension into my muscles then without that? And for a lot of people, the answer is no. That's why you'll see strength and conditioning coaches a lot of the time who are having incredible counter movement jump you'll see them jump through the roof because and they'll have a brilliant back squat and they'll say well you could jump like me if you back squat like me and the answer is if i'm an athlete if i'm a basketballer if i'm a soccer player i don't want to jump like you because you need to sink all the way down then to push all the way back up again but when i'm playing sport i don't have the time to do that so are we teaching so, so one, we need to be careful what we're selling to athletes or who just because your strength and conditioning coach looks like he has a great counter movement jump does not mean he can change direction when his foot hits the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly doesn't. And we need to be careful about the weight training that we do with our athletes because we, while we do want to be get stronger and I'm not saying don't get stronger, we could be teaching them to be slower at the same time. Yeah. So that's a very roundabout answer now, but um, the answer is we need just enough stiffness. Uh, we, need, we need just enough strength, as much strength as we can get that doesn't affect the stiffness. And, and stiffness is like all these mobility coaches that are out there these days are talking about getting more and more and more mobile. But if you have more range, then there's a chance that you have to move, then you, then you better be able to move through that range faster. Yeah. Uh, so we need to be we need to be careful with this stuff. We can't just say you need more dorsiflexion. We're going to hammer you get more dorsiflexion because now you have more dorsiflexion. Maybe maybe when your foot hits the floor, you have more range to move through, and now you're slower. So may, maybe now that not nece- not necessarily, but these are considerations that we need to look at that people don't look at they do not look at no one does no we need to be more mobile no actually we need to be just mobile enough Mm -hmm. man that's so well said thank you for saying that that i think people need to hear that and that's really really good um 
Franz Bosch does talk. One of the best pages in that whole book that he has is when he talks about muscle slack and how the best athletes have a smaller counter movement jump, mm-hmm. like a volleyball mm-hmm. player going up to hit over the net. They do not sink all the way down. The best mm-hmm. ones have a very small one. I actually retweeted this thing on Twitter one day of this gazelle, like just jumping through a field. And it was a perfect example of optimizing muscle slack because this thing hit the ground for such a brief moment of time. It just mm-hmm. landed and then it immediately popped right back up. And this thing was jumping like 10 feet every time. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what he's talking about. It's just like, you have to have just enough mobility, just mm-hmm. enough of that counter movement, and then you're going to be sailing. So mm-hmm. uh, that's really cool. So in terms of the actual weights themselves, like obviously mm-hmm. working through a full range of motion in a squat, you're not saying that we shouldn't do that. That's important. No. Of course. Yeah. But what you are saying is that, sh- well, I guess I'm asking you, should we consider mm-hmm. more partial range of motion based off of what you're saying here? Or should we just forget the external load at all sometimes and consider mm-hmm. working through partial ranges of motion with things like isometrics or other yeah. uh, different uh, ways to train the body? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I know Fra- Franz is not a fan of like doing, doing any back squats, I think. Mm-hmm. Or any any squatting really, he'll do a he'll do a clean a Bosch clean. I don't know if he calls it that, but other people call it that. Where like they're they're set up in like a a kick stance uh, with a barbell, and as they as they clean the weight, they'll step forward up onto a box as they're cleaning the weight. So they're they're again they're training more gait specific movements because now the knee isn't extending back until the hip has extended first. So, and he, he'll, he'll have a pause there so that they're not kind of using, they're not, they're not again sinking into the movement first. He'll pause for three seconds, maybe, at the, at, as they dip down into that like mini RDL position, and then they'll go. So, that definitely has its place. But I think I wouldn't kick out any all, all squatting variations. I, I'm a big fan of that stuff. So, I think that has its place. I think isometrics definitely have its place for more coordination, intermuscular coordination, um, and maybe loading very specific joint angles that we need in our sport or regardless of sport. I know it's talked about sport a lot here, but if, if someone is just in, in the weight room and they're training, they should be doing isometrics, in my opinion, for joint health, for tendon health, and for, for gait, because... Their, their body is learning that we're getting better and we're, we're using the muscles together in this way. So isometrics have their place there. Uh, and then stiffness work, like our, our plyo work, we need to make sure that we're being stiff a lot of the time in that. So it's not all about jumping off the highest box in a depth jump and landing down because at a certain height, we will have to we will have to sink down because we just can't absorb those forces from a certain height. But so, so we need to start making decisions. Is it is it is it is it a good idea to go higher and higher and higher on these drop jumps or depth jumps or whatever you call them? Sometimes it's a little bit lower and being able to be stiff when we land. Now, but but the drop jumps from higher boxes and stuff that does have a that does have a benefit as well. So I think it's a mix of all these things and then putting them into like a soup and, and trying to find the right, the right ingredients for the right person. Mm-hmm. But 
if you're just looking at if you're just looking at strength training and not looking at all of the rest of the stuff then i think you're missing a massive chunk of it but then likewise some people are doing silly looking coordination drills on a bosu ball and and actually that's like some of that is fine you know some of that makes people move feel good and move well but they're missing all the other part of it so we everything works for a reason everyone will tell you actually like some fellow will go to china and they'll hammer a hammer on his back and and he'll say my back feels better you know so Mm -hmm. everything works for someone it's 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 finding out why it actually works not taking the not taking that person's word for gospel and saying right this is all i'm going to do now it's it's taking the bits and pieces the pieces of gold from everyone and, and making it into a maybe a system that works for you absolutely absolutely yeah and uh hopefully um coaches that are listening to this now like i hope you guys realize the benefit of like dipping your toes in so many different things and taking away from everything because ultimately it is up to us to make our own soup as you described. And yeah. uh, that's, that's awesome. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Like this was a super good conversation. I think you opened up a lot of people's eyes to some things that they perhaps did not consider before. So thank you, David. That was awesome. You're welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Connor. Um, hopefully we'll chat again. Sounds good. I would love to.